Welcome to the Dylan Experience. Today's episode 68, and I've got a special guest for you today. But before we get to that guest, make sure you like, subscribe, follow the channel, do whatever you need to do to stay in touch with the podcast. My next guest is a retired firefighter with a 23-year career where he held such notable positions as public safety rescue diver, critical incident stress management peer counselor, uh, chief of special operations, company lieutenant, and even a battalion chief of operations, and more. Uh, he has since become an international best-selling author of the book, Fireproof, Your Grand Strategy for Transforming Failure into Fuel for Your Future. He's a professional speaker and a John C. Maxwell certified coach and DISC method trainer. I had the pleasure of being on his podcast, From Embers to Excellence, if you've seen that. And so I'm looking forward to another conversation with my guest today, David Hollenbach. David, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Dylan. And uh, just a small correction, the, my book, Fireproof, hasn't actually officially released. It, uh, it officially releases in October, October 11th. The oh. international best-selling, uh, uh, I don't know, descriptor is for another book that I contributed to. So Gotcha. Um, too easy but, well yeah. <laughs> yeah well here's the book right and it's coming out october october 11th so make sure you check that out but tell me uh david obviously we've had a conversation before but my listeners haven't maybe been privy to that conversation um so tell me and tell them about you how did you get to this point how did you become a best-selling author how did you you know write this book that's coming out um Tell me all of these things that would, I, I guess, be your story. Well, uh, I, I actually talk a lot about it in the book, how I ended up writing the book. Um, and it's, there's a lot of serendipitous moments in my life where you know, I found myself in a pretty dark place only to, you know, have somebody say something encouraging where, you know, I just put my nose to the grindstone and pushed through and, and just found a way to uh, find my footing again. And, um, you know, this particular time in my life that I, I reference in the book towards the end of the book was probably the, the biggest challenge I, I've ever faced. Um, that was losing my career. I had been struggling with PTSD and um, was really making some poor decisions in my personal life. And, uh, you know, personal and professional lives, they, they are intertwined, no matter how you try and keep them separate. You know, you are you, you're not somebody different when you're at work or when you're at home. And I could hide my struggles when I was at work for a period of time, you know? Um, and if I was struggling at work, you know, here I am, I'm a battalion chief. I just go somewhere where nobody else is and like, hopefully not get a call so I can, you know, cry or, you know, I mean, there, there was days that were pretty rough. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, on my days off, uh, I wanted to feel good. So whether it was 
know, trying to feel good physically by spending time with uh, somebody that found me attractive or, you know, having some cocktails or whatever. When, when you do too much of anything, uh, you know, you're, you're on a path to destruction. So um, in my personal life, I was, I was chasing that dopamine fix, just trying to feel good for a little while. And, uh, you know, I made some poor decisions and it, it resulted in me losing my career 23 years. And, and I was very well respected. And uh, to have my, my face all over the news, having news trucks camped outside my house, got a 15 year old daughter that, you know, wondering what in the world is going on with dad, you know? Um, it's very humbling, it was very embarrassing. Uh, it, it sucked really bad, man. I, I went to a really, really dark, dark place. And um, you know, man, I'm like, <clears throat> take your time. So, so when I, uh, I actually signed my termination papers and this is just ridiculous. Uh, they had me meet them in a public's parking lot. This is the fourth largest fire department, Metropolitan Fire Department in the state of Florida. And they had me meet them in the public's parking lot. To, Publix is a shopping center, you know, grocery store in Florida. Uh, so I, I met these chiefs, two chiefs, in a public's parking lot and signed my termination papers on the trunk of a car. How insulting is that? I, you know, it's a it's a much bigger story than what I'm I'm letting on, but uh, <clears throat> I lost my job, I lost my career, and I lost my identity, and. Uh, that that day in the public's parking lot that was the day before thanksgiving wow so here i am going into the holidays and they had already had me uh out uh, on administrative leave without pay uh for quite some time so going into the holidays i was you know i was broke yeah and uh and so i i lose my job and you know, after Thanksgiving, after like having somebody in my family at Thanksgiving say something that just triggered me and I, I went outside and just cried like it was horrible. Uh, and to feel like everybody is looking at you, like everybody in my family is looking at me like I'm this huge failure, this huge fuck up. Or, I'm sorry, can I curse? Absolutely. All right. Why the fuck not, right? right. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> um, so, yeah, man, it, you know, you, you 
that feeling of isolation and and just feeling like yeah you're you're a scumbag you know and the reality is that okay so i was accused of domestic violence and thankfully i have security cameras in my house and i gave that uh video footage to my attorney the attorney gave it to the district attorney or the public def or the the prosecuting attorney and the state there's you know we're not charging you with anything and everything went away but my department because of uh how i was portrayed in the media right after the arrest because i was arrested for domestic violence mm -hmm. and i was just like what are you are you kidding me um so and and that well <laughs> I'm, I'm giving details that uh allude to something uh, that i should just clarify so <clears throat> I had gotten into a relationship with a woman who I allowed to move in with me with her five-year-old son. Um, she had given me a sob story about, you know, not having money and, um, you know, her, her son's father was not giving her child support and, she, you know, she was struggling and she had all this debt. And so, I allowed her to live with me without contributing anything to the household. And then on top of that, I paid off her car, her student loans, <clears throat> her medical bills, gave her money for an attorney to take her uh, ex to court when all the while he was giving her money for child support. And, uh, and she was making more money than she said she was. And I started suspecting something when I saw her wearing new clothes and there's like new stuff and I'm working more than I've ever worked in my life. I uh, was making more money than I've ever made in my life yet. I was in deeper debt than I'd ever been in my life. And I'm like, how can this be? And so one day I I'm like, Hey, where'd you get those clothes? And she was like, Oh, I've had them. And I'm like, okay, well, I'd like to see your bank account because I feel like something's going on here. And so she showed me her bank account and that's when I verified that she had been lying to me for over a year, um, actually our entire relationship. And uh, I had overextended myself over the course of that time. And she was just like, well, whatever, you know, she, you know it is what it is. And so I'm like, all right, I, I want you out. And she wouldn't move out. So uh, I was just waiting for the lease to be up and, uh, you know, it's like, you know, as soon as the lease is up, I'm moving out and you can do whatever you want. And uh, <clears throat> when I didn't have my daughter with me, so I have my daughter every other week. Um, when I didn't have my daughter, I just worked a lot. Or, you know, there was a young firefighter who expressed an attraction towards me and I, I got involved with this young female firefighter. Um, and it was great, you know? I mean, uh, it was kind of that um, boost to my self-esteem to have 
uh, a woman that was 20 years younger than me find me attractive all while you know the one that was living with me was being such a jerk and treating me like you know I was less than and so that you know it's it's tough especially all the while I am struggling with PTSD and I'm not being honest with myself that I'm having issues so I'm not getting help I'm having nightmares I'm drinking too much and like just isolating myself except when I'm spending time with this firefighter and at some point she had written me some love letters and you know I didn't know what I did with them and the ex who was still living in my house found them I guess she was going through my stuff and I'd I guess I had hidden them somewhere I don't know <clears throat> or actually no I didn't hide them they were in a folder in my backpack which was in my closet and she went through it and uh found those letters and decided to make a big thing out of it. And when she confronted me with them, I was like, yeah, here, even a better reason for you to move out. Why don't you move out now? And so she just, uh, she became abusive verbally and physically. And it was evident in the videos. You know, I just, I knew what was going on. I just put my hands behind my back and uh, let her push me and let her yell at me and all that stuff. And I just kept on, oh yeah, well, get your stuff and get out. Get your stuff and get out. And I went out to her car to get uh, the garage door opener so that when she left, she couldn't get back in unless I was around because you know, she'd already robbed me of thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. You know, like what else is she gonna take from me? So I go out and I get the garage door opener and I go to put it in my vehicle and she slams my truck door on me. And so I pull back and she's like trying to get the garage door opener from me and she's like charging in and inadvertent headbutt, you know, on her part, she's coming in to me, her head hits my head. And that's when she calls 911 and says that I headbutt her. And uh, even the interview, after I was handcuffed and arrested, uh, the whole interview of her talking with the uh, deputies was recorded on one of my security cameras. And I still, when I looked at it, gone like, at what point did these officers go, yeah, you know, she's being truthful with us. It was ridiculous. It was, uh, so anyways, The fact that uh, the reason I was the reason I was uh, terminated was because of conduct unbecoming a chief officer. So apparently, at some point, I well, the reality is I should have just left and gotten law enforcement involved on you know my part i should have taken those steps to have her removed from my house and uh and i didn't and i allowed her to keep on engaging and uh and so i mean i i still feel like all that i gave to my community that uh was a slap in the face to be terminated 
because of somebody lying and accusing me of something that I didn't do. So <clears throat> to fast forward to after Thanksgiving and I'm in this really dark place and I'm drinking and uh, didn't have my daughter with me. Uh, she was at her mom's house at this point and um, I, I just drank an entire day away and at some point I found myself at the bar down the road from my house and uh, a couple of people asked me if I was okay to drive like you don't need to be driving I'm like oh no I'm not I'm gonna get a lift and I waited like it was like three o'clock in the morning or something I waited for those people to drive away and I got in my truck and I drove home and on my way home, I decided that I was going to crash my truck. And, uh, yeah, I, I unbuckled my seatbelt and rolled down the windows or, you know, electric windows didn't actually roll them down. I lowered the windows, uh, and put my foot to the floor and, um, I, I took my hands off the steering wheel. Uh, I was going about 90 and I had aimed my truck for this wall. And there's this uh, big tree right there. So if I glanced off the wall, I was going to, you know, destroy my truck with that tree. And, um, I, you know, I just made that decision uh, feeling, you know, hopeless, you know, and, uh, and I, I looked up, I, I'm not <clears throat> too much of a praying kind of guy, but I, I looked up to ask for forgiveness. Uh, and on my visor, there's a picture of me holding my daughter on the day she was born. And um, it was in that moment that I slammed on the brakes and uh, everything went black. And um, I woke up the next morning in my bed. My truck was in my driveway, not a scratch on it, not a scratch on me, uh, but I was destroyed emotionally. I, I, I couldn't believe that I had almost done that to my daughter and, uh, and a good friend of mine called me like, within five minutes of me waking up <clears throat> and I didn't answer my phone he called back and I took his call and I was like crying and he's like dude what's going on and uh told him and he's like I'm on my way and uh he he had made arrangements for me to talk to somebody um <clears throat> that specializes in uh, PTSD related to combat and uh, public safety. So this program at the University of Central Florida called UCF Restores uh, was established for combat vets. And after the Pulse nightclub massacre, they opened it up to uh, first responders, law enforcement and, and firefighters in the mess. Yeah. And so I, I ended up going through that program and, and it helped a lot. It got me going in the right direction, but 
as you know, it's not like a one and done. You got to keep on working to, to stay out of the dark, you know? Yep. And uh, so I've done a couple of retreats and it was, there was a, a point when I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and finish writing my book. I had started writing a book on leadership uh, like 10 years earlier. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to finish writing this book. And um, I decided it wasn't going to be like some kind of textbook leadership stuff. I was going to give my story, my failures, my experiences, the lessons that I've learned from falling on my face. And, you know, there's, there's times in our lives where we, we just screw up. We make poor decisions and we find ourselves in a place that um, we're not proud of. And, um, and it's what we do with that, that really tells the world who we are you know we can allow that mistake or failure to define us or we can allow it to refine us to make us better um and it's not that we're never going to make another mistake again because you know we are but uh that experience if nothing else we can use that experience when we recognize somebody else going through something similar to be that person, to give them a hand up, dust them off and say, look, man, you know, it feels like shit right now, but you can make it through this and you can be better for it. And uh, that's kind of what I, I wanted to tell people in my book and just uh, try and help where I could, you know, I, I wanted that experience to mean something and not just be uh, another dark time in my life, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, when you say that experience, are you talking about the suicide attempt or the kind of the old, the whole, the whole thing, the whole thing? Um, when was that, like timeline wise? So that was 2019 and I began writing my book and or finishing my book. I had had a lot of it written. Uh, a lot of it would ended up being deleted just because I felt like it wasn't true to who I am. I wanted to use authentic, like personal experience mm -hmm. to say so this it's all, is this. It's all very fresh still, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, more good for you, to be honest, you know, to, to be frank about um, the ability to learn how to express the things that you've done wrong. Um, not just mental health wise, but like the whole, the whole relationship, um, uh, I think is, that's a hard thing to deal with. 
right? And and it's a hard thing, I think, regardless of who's at fault, it's a hard thing to approach uh, and say, here's where I made mistakes. And here's where, um, you know, I think, I think one of the biggest things in, in a domestic violence situation, regardless of which side you're on, is how you approach contempt. Um, how do you approach the other person? Um, and I think if you are to really heal from anything like that, it's approaching your own contempt, right? Of, of seeing that other person and saying, um, what were they going through and what, what was I going through? Where did I go wrong? Where did they go wrong? Um, and not necessarily to blame, but to understand. Um, and so I, I, you know, I give you credit where credit's due of, of looking at that story. And, and certainly it's still fresh, right? And so I imagine that there's still some contempt there. Um, but I'm sure you're, you're still actively walking your way through that. Yeah. Well, let me, let me add something to that because where I'm at now is in a much better place and I'll, I'll just give what has been useful to me in that whole thing, because yes, it hasn't been very long that I've been able to look at the situation and say, you know, I've got to give myself some grace. I've got to give mm -hmm. these individuals some grace. The, the people that made the decision to end my employment, um, give them some grace, even though I feel like their decision-making process was crap. Yeah. I, uh, I feel like I've got to allow that to just, you know, dissipate there. There's too much negative energy around dwelling on that. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I found this meditation and, you know, I'm, I'll try anything, you know, and I had heard about a loving kindness meditation and uh, I decided to give it a shot. So I, you know, I searched on YouTube loving kindness meditation and uh, did it. It was like a 30 minute thing and it goes through like, you know, focus on yourself, give yourself some loving kindness and then uh, think of somebody in your life that, you know, and you the goal is to like feel like, I don't know, love, you know, the positive energy towards an individual and like just in a, I don't know, a spiritual way or some way try and send that positive energy to them. And, um, and then you go through somebody that's a little bit further out in your circle of uh, acquaintances mm -hmm. and then do that with somebody that has wronged you that you've had a hard time even thinking of in a positive way and, and try and extend loving kindness to them and um, when I was struggling with that in my head I'm like I don't even know how I could feel positive towards this person the next thing the guy says in the meditation is like if you're if you're struggling with this, go back to yourself and think of that part of your soul that is hurting right now, because that is what's preventing you from extending loving kindness to you. It's not that you're 
saying that they're a great person or anything like that. It's just being able to feel something positive for something other than yourself and, and some just trying to heal that part of you that has been injured. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and once I was able to do that and really identify like, Oh, you know, it's not about them. It's more about me. And like this part that was injured, I need to try and heal that. Right. And, uh, and when I focused on that, it, it made a big difference. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I still have moments where I'm like, man, I can't believe that I lost my career, you know? I Mm -hmm. invested so much time and effort. I've given my life, you know, given my health to this career. And then, and so it's one of those things that if you don't take the time to try and heal those those injuries, um, they can consume you and they will. Right. That can, you know, I've, I've seen, I've seen that happen with military, right. And I don't, you know, it's not comparable to this situation in terms of what you do as a firefighter. Um, but I've seen betrayal with the military of how the military operates. People fall through the cracks, things happen. Um, and that consumption of identity, right. Identity loss. I think we were talking about it before the podcast. Um, the identity that you build through a career like this, the loss of it is so destructive that people can turn remarkably negative. Um, and to, to come out of that with any kind of positivity is, uh, is a really powerful thing. Um, and I think it's important for you, obviously that's that you've, that you've come out of this, right. Um, being able to look at yourself, look at your boundaries, look at your health, um, you've obviously been able to continue being successful, right. And climb whatever ladder you had to climb to get back to a point where you're actually comfortable with yourself. Clearly there's, there's uh, an ability for you to look at yourself and say, I'm happy with who I am. Right. May I struggle? Uh, will I struggle with my past and will I struggle with my future? Absolutely. Everybody does. Even the people that are comfortable with themselves. Um, but obviously you're still here, which is pretty fucking good. Right. You know, and you're, you're providing something, right. A a book that is so, um, intrinsically deep and, and expresses so much, um, is, is an important thing both for you and for other people. You know, the people that are going to pick this up is, is very important. Um, but it's not much different from my book, right? My book is very much, uh, the priority was to be an expressive piece for myself, right? It was, it was my, my first book. It's not going to be my last book. Um, I just think it's, I think it's really profound um, to have that ability to express yourself. And that's, I think, one of the most important things when we're talking about PTSD uh, in any capacity, it doesn't matter what you've been through. I, like it does, like this idea that uh, PTSD is really only, uh, relegated to people in the military is is preposterous. Um, this goes for anybody, right? To include firefighters, public safety, to just regular people that have gone through 
violence of any kind or any accident or whatever. Um, learning how to express is, I think, step number one, right? And to do that, you need words, right? Because so often that we have feelings, um, especially when PTSD is involved because of the disconnection between the body and the mind, um, we, we don't have the capacity to explain what our feelings are because words don't exist for that. But we can get pretty damn close um, and really begin to sift through the, the minuscule pieces or the details that we, that we can actually uh, hyper-focus on for a little bit um, and expose and learn about. Um, and then your ability to sit with yourself sit with then the thoughts of people that have harmed you and not necessarily make them hold them up to be good, but to understand that you don't have to hate them. You don't have to hold contempt for them, but you also don't have to keep them in your life, you know? And that's, that's, I think, I think that's healthy, right? I think, I think when I see people, because I've seen men go through a similar situation before and hold nothing but contempt for those people um, and almost want to continuously barrage those people. And that's where you, you almost have this, you know, you can't really diagnose people with it, but this, this sense of narcissism where everything's about them and they're the victim to everything. Um, and those people deserve to be punished and punished and punished and not left alone. And, and that's remarkably unhealthy for all people involved. Um, and so it's, I think it's very good, especially as a man to be able to take that step back and say, I'm not here to hate, I'm not here to hold contempt for anybody. Um, because I think the opposite is remarkably bad for a lot of things for a lot of people for a lot of for your life for your reputation because people are going to look at that and say the fuck man like leave him alone you know um yeah i i think i think you're in a good place i mean it's it's not over right it's never yeah. over um even for me i've i've been out of this i've been on this journey for i guess going on 7 8 years now um you know, and, and I still have it coming up August 12th will be, um, everybody will see this so much later, but August 12th is my, is the day my dad died. Right. Um, certainly don't forget that. Right. And that's been, that's been almost 25 years. Um, actually 26 years. I don't even math. I don't do math, but that never goes away. Right. And these, these big events in our lives, they never go away but we can learn to create this narrative around ourselves where it, it bolsters our ability to continue on, to keep going. Um, you know, these, these hits, we're going to, we're going to take the hits. We're going to take the reputation. Um, you know, everyone's going to have the reputation question at some point, some more than others. Obviously yours was quite deep um, and, and very much, I, I imagine it feels like a betrayal. Um, yeah. But look where you are now, right? I mean, that, that's something that you've built. And that's regardless of what happened, you can look at that and say, I, I'm not going to let it hold me back. And, and, you know, neither should you, right? Like, 
you know, the, the, I think the important thing here for, especially with, with your story in mind is that um, when something like this happens, you should evaluate yourself. And you did that, right? You shouldn't just say, fuck them. I'm good. Right. Cause that's not a good, that's not a good idea because what if you are the problem, right. Yeah. You know, and, and then you, you don't realize like one of the things that you did, I think that's, that's really good is that you looked at yourself and you said, my, my PTSD was a problem. It was a big yeah. problem. It was a massive problem. And I never even saw it. Right. Cause we're blind to ourselves. Um, and so you evaluated that. Um, are there more problems? Maybe you'll see those in time. Right. Certainly this is, this is the whole process that I went through of even now I look at myself and my, my wife who is so remarkably, you know, intimate in my, in my life now looks at me sometimes and she sends, you know, we, we watch TikToks every once in a while. And she sends me those TikToks that are remarkably revealing about my personality. Right. And it still surprises me because I'm blind to myself, even though I'm, I feel like I'm remarkably self-aware, right? And yeah. so when you have other people that have the uh, the position in your life to reveal things to you, I think that's a very healthy place. It can be a dangerous place, right? Because those people can reveal too much or reveal it too harshly. Um, and so you have to be careful who you place in that position, right? Like my wife is remarkably kind, remarkably empathetic. And she's very careful about how she approaches those things. And so am I with her. Um, and so we have that relationship that we're able to look at each other and say, Hey, this, this might be a problem. It might be something to look at, right? I don't want you to feel guilty. I don't want you to feel ashamed, but I know that this affects you. This affects me. This is, a, this, this is affecting kids. Um, and how can we approach this together? Right. That's a healthy relationship, um, but far too often I see, uh, I see people don't do that, right? They don't bring somebody in, you know, even if that's a therapist or a counselor or myself as a mental health coach, they don't bring someone in to say, "What are my problems?" Because maybe I don't see them, you know. Um, and I think you've done that. It sounds like you've done. That. I'm a work in progress, man. Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One. Um, well, one of the things that I, I wanted to touch on that I'm trying to find a Well, here, I'll, I'll just flip it back over to you and let, let me see where you want to take this conversation. Sure. Well, I mean, we had a conversation prior to this that I think, I think is quite important to talk about and something that um, would be valuable. Uh, you recently spoke at Columbia, uh, Columbia University, and that's in New York City, right? Yeah. Um, about uh, a conversation about female firefighters in departments and how, and, you know, you can tell them, you can tell people more about that. But I think that's a remarkably important conversation to have, not just in firefighting, but in 
the realm of society right now. It's so, there's so much, I don't know, there's just so much dissent between having this conversation about like men and women, right? And the differences between them. Um, so I, I would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts about that discussion, maybe tell, give a, a brief summary of it, um, and then talk about your thoughts about women in firefighting, because I think they're quite important. So uh, I'll give you a little bit of background. When, when I entered the fire service, you know, I was in my 20s, and, um, you know, the culture in the fire service was one in which, you know, most of the talk surrounding women coming into the fire department was that they didn't belong. They can't do the job, you know, like real macho culture, you know, and I was like every other knucklehead, you know, I, you know, I wanted to prove myself to be a tough man and, you know, to hear others that had been on the job much longer and, you know, they're experienced and you hear these people that are held in high regard speak negatively about women. It's, it's, you know, I look back and I'm, I'm embarrassed. I, I, but I know that I was just ignorant. I was ill-informed and just, I hadn't had enough experience to form an intelligent opinion. Uh, so I was taking the opinions of others and making them my own. And so I would make ignorant, misogynistic comments. And uh, one of my very, very good friends uh, in my first year on the department, uh, senior firefighter, happened to be a woman and a badass firefighter. And it was like, in my mind, oh, well, she's the exception. You know, she's one of the exceptions. Of course, there's women that can do the job, but, you know, not that many, clearly, you know. And so she and I were great friends. She was somewhat of a mentor to me. And uh, one day I said something. I don't exactly remember what it was that I said, but she pulled me to the side and she goes, okay, I've had about enough of this. You know, you say some really stupid shit and I know you better than that. <laughs> you are making yourself out to be an idiot. Do you really believe that gender is the determining factor, you know, or however she put it, but I was like, I was mortified and I felt so small and I'm like, holy crap, I really am an idiot, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I really had to adjust my vocabulary and like put my thoughts in check, yeah. you know? And, uh, and when I opened my mind to accept like, Oh, I, you know, yeah, they're, these women are doing a better job than some of the men I'm working with. Like how, how is this possible? You know? And, yeah. uh, and I, I, my career went on and, you know, I had my mistakes and those, you know, mistakes that, uh, men with, you know, not fully formed brains, you know, <laughs> like I, uh, I made a lot of mistakes early on in my career. And um, when I, 
found my footing and I, you know, I, I know that I was a good firefighter. I was, you know, I'm a smart guy. I'm physically fit. Uh, and I lived the fire service, you know, I was consumed by it. I wanted to be the best firefighter ever. And as I moved up in the ranks, I found that the department had no formal leadership training whatsoever. So if you were lucky enough to have a good mentor that mentored you uh, to be a good leader, then bonus for you. But I wasn't that lucky in my career. So when I finally found myself in a position of authority and wondering like, why would these people follow me? Uh, I'm like, I need to do something about this. So I started, you know, studying, consuming leadership and, um, and then I continued my education and the things that I had found were lacking in the fire service that we needed to develop more in our leaders was communication abilities. Um, how do you develop trust in your team? How do you, you know, you have to be more self-aware. Um, you know, one of the things that you were talking those blind spots, there's a thing called the Johari window. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but yeah. it's like, there's all the things that you know, you know, mm-hmm. the things that you know you don't know the things that you know that you don't know you know but other people recognize that in you and then all the stuff that you don't know and you don't know that you don't know no so when you are communicating with your team you want to have that that trust level and that open communication so that people aren't afraid to talk to you about those things that you're ignorant to. Like if you make a mistake and you learn a lesson from it, you want to share that with your team. And if they see you make a mistake, but you don't recognize that you made the mistake, you want them to go, Hey, it would have been better if you had done this. So having that open communication, these are things that I would work with uh, on, you know, I developed a leadership program and, um, started working with young leaders and ultimately, you know, I, I put this work together and on my days off, I was going around to these fire stations and uh, talking with the company officers and the other firefighters and just giving some tools that I had, you know, uncovered in the reading that I had been doing and um, somebody in the training division heard about it and asked if I could do a workshop for the Lieutenant's Academy. And that's really how things started snowballing. I just kept on uh, consuming leadership content and just trying to become better as a leader. And then the continuing education that I did, I went back to school to get my bachelor's degree and my master's degree. And in that education, I was introduced to the, the term emotional intelligence and it's a measurable thing. There's certain pieces of our emotional intelligence that you can measure and there's some differences between men and women. And these areas that I was focused on in the fire department 
you know, working with young fire officers, young firefighters, these areas that, you know, we needed to shore up. These are all areas that women tend to score much higher than men in. The communication abilities, the self-awareness, the building relationships and maintaining those relationships. Now these oh, being empathetic, you know, these are areas of emotional intelligence that women by and large, they score higher than men. Not all women and not all men, but you know, majority. Mm -hmm. And uh, and when you look at the fire service, the concentration of women in the fire service um, in 2010, when I first started doing this research, the concentration of women in the fire service was 3.7%. 10 years later, the 2020 census, it's 4.7%. Compared to other occupations um, that are similar in you know, education requirements, physical requirements, you know, there's a dangerous environment, whatever it is. Um, law enforcement, military service, uh, iron workers, you know, construction stuff. The, um, the, the concentration of women in those career fields is 18% or higher. It's a huge disparity. And then there's like some nonsensical theories as to why that is that have been given in the past, like you know, oh, well, women, you know, physiologically just, you know, weaker upper bodies and, oh, they just don't want to do it because it's dangerous or, you know, the shift work or whatever. But the reality is, is that women do want about the same amount of women, you know, would find value in having that as a career if they were valued when they took on that job. Yeah. So what I've found is that a lot of women that do, do actually come into the fire service, they find that they aren't valued and sometimes dismissed. Um, and they'll go on to find another career field that does value them. Because these are, these are strong women, intelligent women that are coming into the fire service. They're dedicated. And when they don't get the same mentoring uh the same support why why would they stay you know if they know they can use the their skill sets to you know go to another organization and actually be valued for what they bring to the table wouldn't they you know um so i i've seen around the the six year mark six to ten year mark women will tend to leave the fire service and either go into nursing or medicine or you know, even some I've seen become lawyers. Um, it's just, it's unfortunate that that is how it is. And I feel that it has to change, but it, it seems like there's this correlation that there aren't very many women in the fire service and the areas that we focus on in leadership development in the fire service are those areas of emotional intelligence that women score higher. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that women need to be the bulk of the leadership in the fire service. I think it takes men and women and they bring their strengths together and learn from one another 
and achieve more in a shorter period of time. I mean, it's, I, I think there's a lot to be said in that. Right. So. Well, I mean, as we kind of talked before, um, I've been in the military for almost 15 years now. And, and I know, like when I came in, the discussion around having women in the infantry um, was coming to light. It was coming to, to fruition. And I would imagine it's very, it's a very similar conversation. Like if, if we're talking about the obstacles to that idea of why aren't women staying, right? I think it's probably similar to why women haven't really pushed into the infantry. It's the culture, right? It's a very male dominated culture and it's a very male, almost misogynistic um, culture that says women aren't welcome here, nor will they ever be. Um, not to say that that's how it is, but that's, that's the mentality I think that has come from kind of both situations where uh, if we are to solve this problem, because I very much think it is a problem both on both sides of being in the infantry and being a firefighter, um, we need to change culture. And that's, that's a remarkably difficult thing. And I think that takes time. Um, but what, but what are your thoughts in terms of, obviously you, you've seen the firefighter side, I've seen the infantry side. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of the culture? What is it that is kind of standing in the way of more women staying? The upper leadership, because to change a culture of an organization takes a top-down approach like the top person needs to see value in the change in the culture push that change and have sustained communication and like this is the culture we're building this is the direction we're going and it has to be consistent and it's going to take time it's going to be a gradual uh shift but it has to take place and it has to start somewhere the issue is is that people in upper leadership positions, they got there with antiquated mindsets. Mm -hmm. And they got there and they were like, this is how you, know, you are successful. You have to be this way. I mean, look at me. I'm doing great. No. They don't see any uh, fault in how they achieve their success. They don't, so, live, they don't live in the bottom up right now. So to get them to change, it's going to take some forward thinking leadership and say, and, and determination because there's going to be pushback, you know, um, but that's what it's going to take. And there has to be support from uh, the bottom up as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's the newer people, I think are more open to change than people that are set in their way. So the newer people that can see the benefits, uh, you know, and I would encourage men in leadership positions, no matter where they're at in the organization, to be brave because yeah. it, it's going to take some courage to put yourself out there and go against the grain a little bit, you know, to, 
and to hold, to go, hold other people accountable for what they say. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and also to get criticized for stupid shit, but you're going to get criticized. Yep. Like, Oh, I see what's going on here. You're just trying to get laid. You know, if you, if you take an interest in the success of a female subordinate and you're working with them to improve their skills so that they can be more successful in their career, the same kind of mentoring that you would give a man, all of a sudden you're giving it to a woman. That's the only reason is because you want to get laid, you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that you're going to get. Yeah. One thing that I learned in the destruction of my career is that if you are in that position to be mentoring women and men, there has to be very clear boundaries and you have to maintain them and they have to be consistent regardless of gender. And I did not do that. I allowed those boundaries to be um, you know deteriorated and i engaged in a relationship with a woman that uh, i really shouldn't have and not that i was violating any policy she wasn't in my chain of command but it's still the optics were not good mm -hmm. and she had this i mean she's a very intelligent woman um bright career ahead of her but she had to deal with the repercussions of my actions. Yeah. You know, and it's something that I've had to spend some time really forgiving myself for because I that's another area where I felt like such a scumbag. You know, I should have known better. You know, I allowed my fragile self-esteem to go oh she likes me and you know it felt great at the time i, I you know i felt loved cared for uh, attractive and all that but at what cost you know i mean right. i feel like she was probably miserable and uh, you know after the fact you know we ended up breaking up and all that but it just those are some of the pitfalls of putting yourself out there without uh, you know experience or having somebody to tell you how to do it right you know yeah uh, at that point in time i i had had a lot of leadership training but nothing really telling me how to be a good mentor to men and women right so i was yeah it was off the cuff and I think I was doing a good job up until the point I wasn't. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I, there's, there's, I think the social media leadership, and then I think there's the reality of leadership. Um, you know, I think, I think social media has really branded this idea of leadership that looks good, sounds good, but it doesn't really get to the, I think, core of what leadership really is. Um, if you want to lead someone, if you want to uh, show them that they can do the job that they're doing or anything like that, um, you have to be very mindful of how you approach that relationship. Um, 
And there really isn't much discussion about that. Uh, you know, there, there's really not much, uh, especially for men, because I think if, if we look at history and the, the historical accounts of leadership, um, it's usually men that are being, are, are acting as leaders and then taking advantage of their, their power, right. And their ability to, uh, uh, I guess you could say harvest certain relationships, right? Um, as as callous as that might be, that's kind of the reality, um, and and it's not a it's not a comfortable reality. Certainly not a comfortable reality for men, um, but this is a very uncomfortable reality that women have had to deal with for a very long time, right? Um, and I think that's very much changing. I think uh, the people that uh, do it maliciously. Uh, are being are more and more being held accountable. Um, I, I would say the men that mo mostly do it maliciously are being held accountable. Um, and I think that's a good thing, right? I think it's a good thing that you come out and have this conversation with me, as hard as it might be. I think it's important for people to hear. I think it's both important for women to hear that there are men willing to take accountability for themselves, take responsibility for themselves, because that's rare. Um, I can tell you how many times I've had this conversation on one hand, I can start it with one finger because this is the first time I've had this conversation with someone that was willing to take accountability for themselves and their, you know, their responsibility as a leader. Um, it's so rare, right? That was one of my first rules because um, I grew up with two women, right? My dad committed suicide when I was six. So I, I grew up with a mom and a sister that very much helped me define uh, boundaries with women. And I am so thankful for that because that has that has given me the opportunity to work with women how I do, um, and it has become such a such a valuable asset for me to to help women manage the relationships with men and women and women and women and men and men whatever right in a way that isn't uncomfortable. God, I hear so many stories about women who like they go to a male therapist or they go to a male coach and that male coach tries to take advantage of them. That male therapist takes advantage of them. Um, and, and it's, it's ridiculous. Right. And, and it's, it's unfortunate. Right. Um, and it's not something that is talked about all that often. Right. When you hear it, when you hear it on social media, when a woman talks about it, what, what kind of response does she get from women? She's, she's uplifted, but by men, the response is absolutely disgusting and atrocious. Um, and, and it's just not even, it's dismissed completely by men. And that's a problem, right? And certainly in both of our professions, um, it takes a brave soul to step up and say, I'm not going to stand for this, you know? And, um, that usually means that you're doing something right. You know, when, when you're, when you're going against the status quo of how people are treated, um, if they're treated poorly, I'll stand against that status quo every time, you know, and I, I have always done that. I, I will always do that because I'm, I'm so, I'm so annoyed every time I hear these stories because that's what I do, right? 80, 80 to 90% of my clients, um, are women. And I often hear stories of sexual violence, of sexual assault, of rape, of, uh, of 
I can't even think of the word. Um, oh my God, I can't think of the word, uh, but basically uh, grooming, uh, of grooming by leaders and by uh, men in powerful positions. Uh, it, it's, it's exhausting, you know, and, and it's hard. It's hard for me as a man to kind of sit in this position where I have the authority to have these conversations because people give me that authority by watching um, because I don't know how to address it. I myself as a man have never allowed myself to be in that position. And I don't necessarily know how best to go about processing that change. What is the best way to change? I mean, what is the best way to approach that conversation with men who are unwilling to listen? Um, for me, in my life, the best way to help change is to teach my son a very different way that all these men who, who sit here now and say women are not worth as much as I am, um, to change how he feels about that. Um, but I don't know. It's a huge question. It's something that I'm not necessarily silent about. I just don't know how best to go about that conversation because it's remarkably difficult to see someone, you know, that's willing to do that. But then how I can't change a person's mind that doesn't want their mind to be changed. You know, it's, it's hard. It's a hard, it's a hard place to be. Yep. Yeah. Um, a really good book that I read because I've had this conversation with several women that, you know, were very successful in the fire service, very successful in law enforcement, the military. Um, this particular woman, when it was, it wasn't in one of my interviews, it, it was like post interview or something. I, um, talking to her and i'm like yeah i don't know what to do so kind of asking the same kind of question and she was like you need to read this book it's, uh, called athena rising and it was written by two male navy officers and they're basically saying like look gender is not the determining factor of whether a person can do a job or not we need more women in leadership positions. We need the value that they bring to the table. The way that they get there and the way that they're successful is going to take mentoring. The same way that men move up through the ranks, they get mentored. Yeah. You know, the, the best male leaders are mentored by some other male leader. Yep. And, and I'm talking about like male dominated organizations where you can look at the the organizational chart and it's all men you know what needs to happen is there needs to be women on those organizational charts that have been mentored that you know have developed their leadership skills and they're in those positions and they're in a position to mentor men mm -hmm. uh, give them the opportunity to learn the things that you and i have learned and I think yeah. they need to be very disagreeable. Explain that to me. So the idea of being agreeable is being passive. It's, it's this, this, you know, it's when you see something, you don't say something, right. That's, that's right. being agreeable. Like I'm, I'm just going to be silent, right. Just go with the flow. 
if you want to, if you want to be right, it's, it's like me in a situation, like I am, I'm a very disagreeable person. I, I only realized this over the past couple of years, because I've actually started to look at it. Um, but I've always been a disagreeable person when it comes to leadership. I'm always willing to look up and say, yeah, I don't fucking agree with that. Yeah. And, and I do it really respectfully. I'm pretty good at that. Um, I'm not one of those disagreeable people that is so hard to work with. I'm just kind of hard to work with. And I'm starting to realize that because I'm asking the questions to people who used to um, be in charge of me, because oftentimes I've mentored the people that were in charge of me because of how I approach things. Um, and that like, I've heard however many times I've heard the conversation, like, yeah, you, uh, you didn't make it easy on me um, was, was pretty, was pretty surprising when I first had these conversations, because when you're disagreeable, you force people to think your way. Right. Um, and, and especially when you're respectful about it, right. When you're respectful and you disagree with people, you force them to listen to you. Right. Um, because I have power, even though you're in charge of me, especially in the military, because I've got eight guys that are going to listen to me, not you, because I've built the rapport and the respect with them. Now you can replace me. That's fine. That's your call. But then there's a whole lot of paperwork and it's really hard for you. Um, so you could either, you could either listen to me and what I have to say, and then we can come to a compromise or an agreement, or you can replace me. And one of those is a lot easier than the other. And so you basically, I force you to listen to what I have to say, because I think what you have to say is not a, a beneficial option for anybody. Um, because far too often in the military, it comes down from an officer that says, this is how you're going to do it, but they have no experience in the field or they're brand new. And I'm sitting here with, you know, 10 to 15 years of experience at the time, looking at him and saying, I've been deployed to Afghanistan twice now. You might want to hear what I have to say, because I think what you're doing is potentially going to get people killed. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, that experience, women have many experiences men never have. And so if you're going to put a woman in a leadership position, make sure, and if you're going to be a woman in a leadership position, be fucking disagreeable, right? Don't be passive, literally stand up for what you believe. And if yes. you don't know how to stand up for what you believe, start talking about it with people that agree with you, right? Because these conversations that I have started off with people, right? I started off my podcast with a guy named Kyle. He agrees with me, right? Which makes our conversation so easy, right? And I've built up to a point where I can look at people and I say, you know what, Dave, I'm going to challenge you on that. And I'm comfortable doing that because I've had the conversation so many times at this point where I feel comfortable challenging you because I've built up this rapport within myself of information, like this wealth of information and wisdom of and experiences and saying, I know a little bit about what I'm talking about. Here's some anecdotes, here's some statistics, here's some thoughts, here's some theories. And I can be disagreeable because I've worked with people and I've talked to people that are agreeable, you know? And that's not yeah. to say that's their personality. It's just like, they've agreed with me on the same thing. Um, and then now I have the ability to challenge things. Being disagreeable is very important in life. I think I learned this from Jordan Peterson. 
whether you like him or not, doesn't matter. I think it's a remarkably important facet of human communication. You need to be able to disagree. Yeah. And there needs to be respect. And so like, oftentimes people walk away from my podcast or discussion with me and saying, that was one of my favorite, or that, that was an, the most enjoyable um, disagreement I've ever been in. Because I look at you and I say, I, I just, I want to challenge you on this and I want to be respectful about it. And here's, here's what I think, right? It has nothing to do with looking at you and saying, Dave, your ideology is ridiculous. And you then are a bad person. It has nothing to do with that, right? Yeah. If you have an idea, my job isn't to, to shame you for having that idea. It's to, hey, I want to challenge your idea. And if you want to change it, go for it right? If it's something like, uh, if you're, if you're acting like Hitler and you don't like Jews and you want to kill them all, here's my thoughts on that. Fuck you. Right. <laughs> like you should be shamed for that. Yes. Right. But if your idea is, I think this policy should be put in place and you don't have the understanding of what the implications of that are, you should have a discussion, right? Yeah. You know, shame is a very useful tool but it is not a useful tool unless it needs to be a useful tool. Yeah. So I, I limit, and this is a leadership conversation. So you should limit your use of shame constantly. You should limit that. You should limit your judgment because that creates shame. Um, you should limit your silence, right? Um, you should cr always create respectful conversations, but never at the expense of a disagreement, right? You should always try for respect, but you should always disagree with someone to understand more about their thoughts and to help them understand more about your thoughts. Being disagreeable, very important to me. Yeah, no, I'm with you 100% on that. I just didn't understand from which direction you were coming with that when you said yeah. disagreeable. So yeah, no, thank you for yeah. explaining that. Um, men should mentor women that's what we were talking about yeah <laughs> athena because we were talking about athena, athena rising and the title of it um for those who are wondering athena rising how and why men should mentor women uh by brad johnson and david smith it's on audible yeah no it's a great book um it helped me put things into perspective and really it, it shined a light on some mistakes that I had made in my past that yeah. I was not aware of. You know, I'm like, Oh, did that wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, and I, I share that with people because if you don't know, you don't know, you're just going to continue on the same path that you're on. And what damage could you be doing? Right. Yeah. Will you that, ever know? Yeah. And that's, that's why, especially women should be disagreeable, right? Because if, if let's, for example, let's take a man, right? If a man in, as a leadership is in a leadership position is operating in a way that is detrimental to women specifically, and no woman ever says anything, they just leave, Right but this man is actually capable of change because I think most men are it's just how you approach that. Um, 
if one woman were to speak up and say, I disagree, I, I dissent. Um, and that man takes a step back, looks at his situation and says, wow, I have been making a mistake and then changes that changes for the rest of the women. Right. It just takes one, right? Like we're, we're in a situation where it's, it's scary. It, it, like I'll never, I'll never discount that, that part of it. I, I feel like right now, the, the situation in which women find themselves in feels a lot like, uh, I think the civil rights movement in the sixties where they want to dissent, they want to disagree, they want to speak their mind, but the fear of what happens when they do is still there, right? But things are very much shifting, right? This, This Roe v. Wade conversation is just one piece of it, right? There's so much more within the conversation. We have, we as men, in, in this vast world, right? I'm not even going to look at United States uh, as, as one piece of the society. The entire world has devalued women for far too long. And because of social media and the, the amount of information that we have and the, the amount of connection that we have, I think is very much changing that narrative. This, I, this book, I'm really interested in. I'm going to read that um, because... I love I love just the title of Athena rising, right? That's happening right now. I very much think women are very much rising in this, uh, if you want to say social capital kind of capacity where women are being valued, but they're starting to be valued more by women than by men. And one by one, men are going to fall into line and realize we haven't been having conversations and uh, in, in bringing women into them. We've been having conversations with each other as men and leaving out this really, really remarkably intelligent piece of functional society. The, there's been a couple of conversations that I've had, um, not just on my podcast, but um, with women in my life and, and acquaintances, just how conversations have evolved. And and I've said some things that I then am informed is um, well, not agreeable. <laughs> so sometimes, especially like in male dominated organizations, occupations, whatever you want to call it, such as the fire department, to ask a woman to stand up for herself when all she's trying to do is fit in and fit into that culture and find her way, you know, I, I want to just like blend in and, and enjoy my time here. They're more willing to endure the bullshit than like, because there is, I mean, it's a real fear to like the treatment that comes after, not just from the men, but other women that are like, well, I had to go through that. Yeah. You have no idea what I had to go through, you know? And it's like, it's completely, that doesn't make it right. (laughs) It's, it's completely like, I, I realize that what I'm asking is completely unfair. It's completely unfair of me to look at a woman in a situation like that and say, 
be disagreeable because she shouldn't have to, right? She shouldn't, right. she shouldn't have to, uh, you know, sit there and defend herself from everybody for disagreeing with something that is always, that, that was already determined to be wrong, but and because of culture, it's okay. And if we're talking about male dominated organizations, we've got to, the men out there that are in a position or I don't care if you're like the lowest man on the totem pole. If you see something that's going wrong, you got to say something, have, have the nerve, have the courage to say something and be an ally to those women. Don't let them get bullied. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't mean that women are weak for needing a man to help them get through this. No, it's, Men need to show women that we're not all assholes. Right. Like there, there is some support, you know, give them the room to make that decision. Like, no, I'm not going to put up with this shit anymore. Yeah. It's, it's, you want to talk about equality, right? Like this country was founded on equality, was founded on freedom of choice. I think freedom of choice, right? Um, and we should have those, you know, and, and if a female meets the standards of the infantry, if she meets the standards of the fire department, she should be treated equally, mm -hmm. right? If she doesn't, just like any man that doesn't meet those standards, then I'm sorry, you, you didn't make it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and whether those standards are uh, what, what, you know, a six foot six 260 pound monster would agree with or not is not the question right um you, you've got to get over yourself right? like if you're a man right now in this in today's society you need to get over yourself and start understanding that your brute strength is not the only thing that's beneficial to society right the the mind i will always believe is far more important right um, and, and what that does, especially now is it puts people on an even, even keel, right? Your, your strength is not as valuable as it used to be in, uh, you know, two to 20,000 years ago when you needed it, right. Or your stamina when you were hunting, I you, we're not fucking hunting anymore, right? Half of us sit at computers and we look at them all day and what the fuck do you need strength for that for, right? All you need is, is fingers and a hand, right? And eyes, right? So don't act like, don't act like you're any better than anybody, right? The mind is far more powerful than anything, anything out there right now. Now that doesn't mean that we don't need strength doing firefighting or doing, you know, what, what I do in the infantry, like, like, I'll be honest, right? I'm a sniper. And the funny thing about being a sniper was we actually just graduated the first female sniper of the United States uh, sniper program um, during my November class last year. Um, not in my class, but in the Benning class. Um, and I heard the same thing. I heard, you know, all the, the misogynistic comments and I was like, yeah, whatever. I mean, there's, there's a Russian sniper. Um, I, I think, I think her name is like Lydmia Pavlichenko. She had 309 kills in World War II. 
That's wow. that's like the second or third highest kill count um, ever by a sniper, right? And that's and she's a woman, right? And so this idea that men are better is is preposterous because she's better than ninety nine percent of the men that do the job, right? Whether she had the opportunity or not, she she did it, right? She didn't just have the opportunity; she did it. Um, and so when I hear that women can't do these jobs, it's like, no, they can't do the jobs the way that you think the job should be done. And that's the thing is like, we should bring in women to do all of these jobs because they will probably find ways to do them more efficiently than you ever, than, than you could see because you're a big dumb brute and you have to do it your way. Right. Like, women are going to bring in new processes that are going to be uncomfortable, but they're probably going to be better, right? They're probably going to be more safe. Maybe, you know, maybe I, I think that'll happen. They'll probably be a little bit smarter, right? They probably won't have as much hazing, right? Cause that's probably beneficial, you know? Um, like, (laughs) like a lot of this sounds a lot better than what I grew up with, with in the military. And I'm okay with that. Right. If you think people need to go through a rite of passage, Maybe you are the problem. Maybe, you know, try it on for size, see what you think. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think they do. I think that's what this, like the schools and the classes are for. Um, when you go get your qualifications, that is a rite of passage. Um, it's just a different rite of passage than what you went through. And so maybe take your, your ego and tuck it away because it's not necessary anymore. Um, Cause we're all just trying to do a job, right? We're all just trying to, we're just all trying to survive. Right. Um, and I think that's far more important now than, than building an ego about, Oh, I'm the, I'm the best sniper in the world. Right. I'm the best firefighter in the world. It's not that it's not an important claim, but maybe build a competition around it rather than building a haze fest, you know? Yeah, you know, we were talking earlier and talking about the the women that I've worked with in the fire service, the how just tough. Like, I mean, I, I think so many times because there are so few women, if one woman makes a mistake, it like they're held to such a higher standard than the men. But the reality is, is that women are outperforming men all the freaking time. Like there was, in my career, there was a lot of women that I would much rather work with than some of the the lazy, out of shape firefighters that were, well, I'm big. Okay, so. Yeah. Now I I have to. On the roof and. now i now i have to carry your big ass when you fall down right like and i and i've heard this before like i i would much rather have a big guy carry me out of a fire than you know some you know 110 pound girl well i want somebody that's not gonna give up yeah when i get heavy you know and go oh sorry i'm i'm getting hot let me get get out of here real quick. I'll come back for you. I promise. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the tenacity that some of the women that I've worked with is incredible. Um, yeah. And to do it with a fraction of the recognition that the men get. Right. Right. Recognition my... and respect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And I, I see it as well in the military. Uh, and I, I do what I can to, to have that conversation. Um, certainly not an easy conversation, but it's, it's definitely something that we as men need to talk about more um, and have deeper conversations on. Um, but yeah, well, Dave, this has been a, 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 a guys, this conversation has gone all over the place. It's been, it's been great. It's been, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about stuff that I haven't necessarily dug into myself and, and had deeper conversations on. So I'm glad for that. Thank you for that. Um, why don't we close this out um, and, and give each other, uh, you know, the rest of the day off. How about that? Um, so let me, let me ask you this uh, final question, then we'll, we'll close the episode out. If there was one message you could leave the world, Dave, what would that be? I believe that we're all searching for the same thing. It's that, that pure happiness, that sense of fulfillment. And I feel like that, that the purest form of fulfillment comes from giving of yourself well, first, investing in yourself so that you are more capable of adding value to those that you care about, to those in your community, um, to those on your team. When, when you help somebody else achieve something that they didn't think they could succeed at, the sense of fulfillment that you will have, I think, is unmatched. And... I feel like if all of us were pursuing that, the world would be a much better place. I agree. It's well said. And I really appreciate you having me on your show and sharing your platform with me to talk about my stuff and and just have an amazing conversation. I really appreciate it, man. Of course. Uh, I'm all for it. I'm all for having these conversations. Um, you know, if is there is there anything that you want to share with the listeners right now that uh, um, other than outside your book, which retrospectively thinking, because this episode is going to be out in December, people are going to see see it later it already came out october 11th so you know forget <laughs> yeah, what i said 11th. forget what i said in the beginning of this episode where it's going to come out october 11th it already came out october 11th um yeah, so is is there anything you want to direct people to yeah um i'm um, it's going to be available everywhere books are available uh you can get a signed copy on my website if you want to go to my website it's hollenbachleadership.com 
you can find all of my social media links there. You can find uh, mental health resources. Um, you can find my my podcast there where Dylan was just on and uh, great conversation. But uh, the name of my podcast is From Embers to Excellence. Um, and I, I hope uh, I hope people do decide to buy my book and uh, tell me what they think about it, whether they like it or not. But it's uh, me bearing my soul. And I think there's a lot of good information in there. Well, I've got it. At some point, I'm going to be reading it. Um, time is my enemy right now because I have a baby and that's my priority. But I'm getting there. I, uh, I read a few words this morning um, in preparation for this interview. So I was uh, I was excited to read a little bit. I, I, I like it so far. So definitely, uh, definitely, if you're, if you're in the, uh, on the market for a new book, try it out, get it. Do you mind if I, so I don't, well, you haven't seen yet, but in several places in my book, I share a small piece of one of my favorite speech speeches, uh, given by Theodore Roosevelt, um, and it's one of the things that I've fallen back on when I've been struggling. Um, yeah. it's, uh, they call this little piece of his speech, Theodore Roosevelt's speech. He gave it April 23rd, 1910 in Paris, France. But this little piece is often referred to as the man in the arena. Yeah, go for it, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end a triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who never know victory nor defeat. It's absolutely one of my my favorites, my personal favorites. Um, yeah, I, I I love it. Yeah, if you um, if anybody out there listening is is struggling right now, uh, going through a tough time. You know, if you're listening to Dylan, you know where you can uh, get some support. I mean, he's an incredible guy. And um, But if you're beating yourself up, one of the lessons that I've learned through my journey is I, I had to take a step back and uh, give myself some grace and allow myself to remember some of the good things that I've done in my life. They haven't all been bad. Yep. Absolutely. Thanks again, man. Thank you, Dave. And thank you for everyone that's been listening up until this point. Um, and we'll catch you next time on the Dylan Experience. And that's it. <laughs>